HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Agave Road Trip is brought to you by Mezcal Amaras. Mezcal Amaras is a company built through love, love for the sun, the land, and the people who work it. And most of all, love for Mexico and its sacred plant, the agave. Now strap yourselves in for another episode of Agave Road Trip. I am Lou Bank. I am Chava Periwan. And this is Agave Road Trip, the podcast that helps gringo bartenders learn something about agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. And today, Chava, I am putting away my copita and I am taking out my rocks glass. Because we're talking cocktail mezcal. That's right. Mezcal cocktail, cocktail mezcal. So, <laughs> um, you know... I, when people say cocktail mezcal, it sounds to me like an insult coming from some people, right? Yes, and I lived through this when I was working at Sombra Mezcal, which, again, you know me, I haven't drank many cocktails in my lifetime. Probably the mm-hmm. first proper cocktail that I had was a year ago in New York in existing conditions. But before that, I had had like a paloma, you know, just like... Stuff that I wouldn't even call a cocktail. It's just basically you put tequila and a little bit of water on top of it. And what you call a paloma is most likely... Apparently, I was going to say, because when I, when I go to a stereo and, and Michael Rubel makes me a uh, a paloma, it is delicious. And it's grapefruity and it's a lot of... It's, he does a lot of things. Exactly. No, what I call a paloma is you take the worst tequila you can find and then you throw squirt into it you mix it in equal <laughs> proportions and then you just close your eyes and hope for the best oh. well so okay so that's that's not what we're talking about that's fair we are talking about the proper i guess cocktail then um i think the it, term is craft cocktails. craft cocktails They're, well you know i wouldn't even go so far as to say it has to be craft you know in, in the usa and this might again be a, a difference in cultures java but in the usa like you go to a tgi fridays and you get a margarita and that's a cocktail and i don't think you would call it a craft cocktail uh i don't even think you'd call it a proper cocktail but this is this is really where the market for alcohol is here we don't have a great history of drinking spirits neat in the usa and even even the people who drink things that are neat usually what they're drinking will be uh like scotch or bourbon Mm -hmm. even they will tend to drink cocktails. Oh, that's so weird. 
Like that's if you were to tell me that a ristretto drinker is is drinking frappuccinos. <laughs> like it's uh <laughs> I Well no, I, I just say that because you usually hear it's a personality thing, right? So if I'm like cool and enlightened and I do the the neat, mm -hmm. I shall never touch the mixed stuff. Yeah. It's uh it's almost like a matter it's mostly posts, but uh people like to think that it's a matter of principle. That's interesting. Well, that, yeah, that doesn't really exist here for the cocktails. And, uh, you know, there are certainly people who will say it's silly to drink a margarita at a TGI Fridays, but the vast majority of the drinking public, that's what they do. That's what they do. And so, mm. so there is a market for the mezcal cocktail. Okay. And, um, and that requires a cocktail mezcal. Um, and, and generally the cocktail mezcal is going to be understood to have two qualities to it, right? So the first quality is going to be consistency of flavor from one pour and one bottle to the next. So the bartender, right, pulls the bottle out of the well before making like, you don't have to wonder what's this going to taste like, you know, your ingredient. So, you know, the recipe will work. That makes sense. Yeah, because you designed that cocktail. It's a recipe. So if any ingredient in that recipe is acting funky, the end result will, right? And right. you spent a lot of time just getting the right proportion of everything. You don't want all that to start getting really hazy. Right, right. You know what to expect. Therefore, your customer knows what they're getting. So that's number one. But number two is also the price. Mm. So, you know, these agave spirits that we love so much can be incredibly expensive and utilizing an incredibly expensive spirit in a cocktail can turn what you'd expect to be a, let's say a $9 and 95 cent cocktail into a 25 or $30 cocktail, which most people don't want to be drinking. Of course not. $30. Well, I, I have to say I once had a $45 cocktail, but I did not pay for it. Uh, but I, I, of course they didn't. That's crazy. But, uh, when somebody else is paying, then you do want the $25 cocktail. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. It was a mezcal cocktail, by the way. It was the most expensive cocktail in the menu in that place. Well, there you go. Uh, which, which is crazy, right? Like who will have thought that 20 years ago where like that mezcal would outprice scotch? Like it just blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually my frustration is that it doesn't. Uh, outpriced scotch as much as it should. But that's a different episode. Okay, yes. That's a different episode, yeah. Um, so, so those two things, consistency of flavor and uh, and low price, how do you achieve that in your mezcal in order to qualify as a cocktail mezcal? Well, I think you have two options, basically. One is you really trust your brand and you think you're going to have massive sales consistently for the years to come and you invest in a very big palenque right right you buy yourself a massive well not massive but when we say massive people have to understand that <laughs> massive in the skull country means something drastically different it's all relative it's all relative <laughs> so yeah like yeah. massive for the little town in the context uh where you can make i don't know ten thousand liters a month consistently for a full year so you go do that which is what Sombra did when I started working with them. So they decided they wanted to have a very consistent flavor profile and chose all the equipment and all the conditions that will assure that even if you had different guys in there, even you had different maguey, you sort of have enough control to not have the exact same product because the beauty about agave spirits is it's going to be slightly different, but you're going to have the same sense, the same feeling what you get 
each bottle of Sombra. And I, you know, I got to say, like the way that they have scaled up as well, while still adhering to tradition, while it certainly makes a lot of um, of uh, mescaleros crazy that they're using these artisanal methods, like you know, the, using the tahona to mill, but the tahona instead of being pulled by a horse is pulled by a little electronic cart that is propelled by solar power. It makes them nuts. You know, and I understand why. I got to say, I I find a beauty in that because they didn't need to hearken back to those traditions. And yet they still did. And I think the end result is a better flavor. And yet a better flavor that is produced in a manner that allows them to do it at a larger scale. Yes. And I think that's extremely difficult to achieve. We spent basically a year designing a lot of those things to happen. And uh, and it's and and I think that's another point why people don't want to go that way. It's not only throwing money in there, but it's also taking the time and having the brains to be able to do something that still adheres to tradition, but uses a lot of the contemporary technologies that we have access to. Right. You have a very you need a very specialized team to get sure. there. So there's the other option, which is uh, <laughs> there's the other route you can take, which is which is blending, which you know is is completely acceptable in most every other um, spirit category, right? And isn't frowned upon. Um, but here it is. And and I kind of understand why, and not even kind of, I understand why it's frowned upon, right? So you, you've got these tanker trunks that'll pull up to these little communities and just suck up uh, the these small batch agave spirits and blend them all together into one giant mix. What do you have, guy? 10 liters? I'll take them. Give them to me. Right. And they'll do that month after month, year after year. We even found one of those when we were road tripping in La Sierra. And we were lost. He was also lost. Had a big tank on the back. <laughs> and he was just fishing out for agave spirits as we were, just with different intentions. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, his, his capacity to purchase was greater than ours. Slightly. But which, which, which I think actually is the relevant point here. Right. Like it, it's frustrating for us as people who enjoy tasting these these small batch 60 liter spirits um, in made, you know, beautifully by hand with love and care. That's what we want to taste. And then this truck comes along and just devours 30 of these batches in a second. Yes, and we were talking in Chichicapan uh, with uh, Fortunato and some of his friends. We're not very sure of which of his friends uh, we pulled this <laughs> quote off. Uh, we're going to find the name correctly. We just have to fish it. And we're going to put that on our website. Well, no, we'll put it up. We'll put it in here in post-production. Can't we do that so it's still part of the... I'll, I'll, I'll try to figure that out. You'll do but that. I would like to use this quote from Fortunato Hernandez, who was joined by some of his friends, uh, Pedro Chigoya, Juan Hernandez, and others. And I think it's super interesting what they got to say. So why don't we roll the tape? What we normally do is to bring our agave to cook, meal, and distill it. When we are done, we have to pay the palenque's owner, to whom we give 7.5 liters per fermentation tank. So it does happen that when people come buying, sometimes we don't have enough mezcal, and they keep on searching, because that is their business, to go around and find enough mezcal. 
We are sure of our work, but we can't be sure of what other people are doing. There are some that we know, like our uncle, and we trust his work. So if you were here buying, we will recommend him to you. But it is a hard situation. Okay, so, you know, to the point, here's a, here's a community that needs this, this resource, this income. And I don't know if it's, I don't, I do know. It's not okay for me to go and tell this person that he or she should be respecting his spirit more and serving it just as its own distinct batch. Um, and really what you're talking about is protecting cultural heritage. And it's this person's cultural heritage, not ours, not mine, and even not yours, right? Yes. And I think this is really where the bartender becomes our superhero because it's his or her job to be a true ambassador of the complexity and the cultural heritage that these spirits has, have to offer. And I think they can do that through through the cocktails themselves, maybe. Yeah. So in, in essence, what you're saying is how do you get more of these, these gringo consumers to drink more neat spirits so that more of these producers can make more money – by just selling their spirits as individual batches, yes? Yes, because they, of course, are going to be paid more if their product is understood as being very precious and not just a little piece in the puzzle of a bigger blend, right? Right. So, okay, so if I'm a gringo bartender, right, the first thing that someone's going to ask me for is a mezcal cocktail, and they're going to want something that's smoky, <laughs> and they're going to want something that's that nine ninety five price point. Um, so, great. So I give them that cocktail, and then how do I move that consumer to drinking the neat spirits? Well, I think you had a very nice technique around that, where you will have a cocktail. Then will you make them sip a little bit of the mezcal that was in the cocktail yeah. and alike, right? I think there's a lot of tricks and tips that, I mean, bartenders know their customers really well. And I think it's a lot, a lot about just sparking that interest and uh, and and the, and that you know, just fascination for the spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of them can, you know, have some imaginative way of being like, okay, how do I want this guy to really get hooked into the Gavit spirits world? Right. But I do think it's a path. I think it's give them what they want, give them a little bit, something that relates to what they want, which is that neat pour of the mezcal that was used in the cocktail. Um, and then find something that is similar, that moves them a little bit further down the path. And, you know, and, and all of this, I'm saying with the understanding that no bartender has a has the time to do that on a Friday night when you're five deep at the bar, but on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night, that's when I think you can convert some of these cocktail drinkers into neat spirits drinkers. Amen. Please convert them. Throw them the gospel of agave spirits. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that wraps it for this episode, Chava. I think that too. Adios, jóvenes. <laughs> Hasta pronto. Hang on, road trippers. We're not done yet. We've got an episode of Chava and Lou's Chatfest coming up. This episode of Agave Road Trip was brought to you by Mezcal Amaras. Mezcal Amaras is more than a company. It's a philosophy. It believes in a better world, developing holistic cycle from seed to sip that connects, inspires, and defines what makes them different in the world of Mezcal. To maintain the biodiversity of these wild agaves, Mezcal Amaras handpicks the strongest and healthiest mother agaves, waiting for them to reproduce to select the best seeds later. To this day, they have planted over 
over 150,000 seeds of 18 different types of agaves, among them Espadín, Tobalá, Sierra Negra, Mexicano, and Jabalí. In addition to promote a sustainable growth, Mezcal Amaras plants on average seven agaves for each one harvested out of 10 different varieties. They usually plant in previously deforested land using organic techniques to have agave free of chemicals and rebalance the nutrients of the soil and generating bokashi as a natural fertilizer from the distillery to create a balance of what they take from the land to what they give back. Thank you very much, Mezcal Amaras. This is Chava and Lou's Chat Fest. We're going to chat you up about everything that has nothing to do with agave, agave spirits in rural Mexico. Chava, what are we chatting about today? Well, I think we have opened a whole area of love stories. I think this shouldn't even be Chat Fest anymore. It should be like... Should it be Love Fest? <laughs> that sounds very weird. It does. But uh, well, yeah, we can come up with another story. But I think today we need to speak about childhood girlfriends. Childhood girlfriends. Okay, what you got for me, Chava? Well, and I, and I say this because I tried to push you to talk about your first girlfriend and you said that was not a good idea at all. No, and we're going to stay off of that one. Okay, so I'm going to talk about my first girlfriend when I was... Uh, so I, I, when I was growing up, and you'll say that I still look like it, but I was, I was a really awkward no, looking... No, 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 no. I'd, I'd say you still act like it, Chava. Okay, well, I was a very awkward-looking kid. So uh, let's say in the, <laughs> well, like, I don't know. You know, some people go into adolescence in different ways. Let's say my body was going through a Frankenstein era. And also in the Mexico City context where I was growing, let's say, like, my physical assets were not the most valuable physical assets uh, in, in, in the mix. And, I don't, like, you know what I mean. You're a skinny so anyway, kid. Well, it was not only skinny. I was brown. I had crazy hair. I was, uh, someone, so someone actually told me once wait, wait. that I will be. Did you just say you were brown? I am brown. Like I haven't. Yeah, yeah but, but you're in Mexico. Most people are brown. Yeah. But like, I mean, this is a whole different discussion, I guess. But like in the pocket that I grew, I get to grow up, uh, like Mexicans are not necessarily racist, but there's uh, there's a tint of that. Like there's like they definitely oh, okay. prefer like white looking people. So I was I was very far away from your you know like blonde uh, poster child kid. I was actually yeah, yeah. probably the, I am still probably the opposite. So anyway, like let's say I had it hard. Like, like, uh, and then they had like a personality that was not necessarily the most popular. I even remember, I recall this so clearly. One time someone told me like, you will be far more attractive if just you didn't talk. (laughs) 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 So, you know, like, like, but (laughs) happily, you know what? what? I think, I think your talking is the most attractive thing about you. I appreciate that, Lou. Uh, you're not my type, but I appreciate that a lot. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> so anyway, like finally, finally, like when I was 12, uh, I, I got to have my first girlfriend. And I think that it was because we met swimming. So I, I was longer than most of the kids of my at my age. So we're both you, the faster. You said, you said longer. Yeah, I was taller. Taller, longer, 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 yeah. yeah. So you could you could make really good clay pots uh, for Fenny. Yes, uh, okay. probably not as big as for six hundred liters, but I can bake. I have yeah, long yeah. arms to make pots. Yeah, yeah. but uh, that also gave me other skills like swimming fast. 
So mm-hmm. she and I were the fastest swimmers at the team we were at, at the sports club. And you're wearing goggles and, you know, like the cap. So you don't really look like yourself. I think that really helped me out. <laughs> Your hair was under control. I like that. Yeah, my hair was under control. Uh, and then, like, we even before we spoke, what we started doing was like, you know, when you're doing uh, chest stroke, I think you call it in English, that that type of swimming. Breast, breaststroke. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Breaststroke. Yeah, breaststroke. we call it pecho. Yeah. Pechuga, pechuga yeah, you're stroke. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're like a frog under the water. And mm-hmm. when you're being trained, they like they emphasize a lot that you spend a little bit of time under the water, like, like extending yourself to really use your force that you just invested. So <laughs> even before we started talking, what we used to do is like in that moment when you're underwater and you're standing yourself, we'll look at each other and we'll smile to each other. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> Like so, there's a, there's definitely a Phil Collins song to play during that shot, <laughs> but keep going. Uh, no, so, uh, and I also think that the fogginess of the water, you know, all that, I, I think it really works in my favor. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, yeah, like I, I eventually uh, got her phone number written on a piece of paper. I uh, called her house. Her mother answered. I got panicked. You know, all that story. And then eventually I asked her, like, ¿Quieres ser mi novia? Do you want to be my girlfriend? And she said yes. And, uh, yeah, that was it. We even hold hands at some point. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a sweet story. Hang on. So you were 12 years old. So what was the year? Oh, I ha- uh, so I was born 89 so uh, it was like 90 – no, sorry, 2002. 2000. 2000. 2000, 2002. 2001, 2002, Okay, yeah. okay. You know, so on the uh, on the, the episode page, I'm going to definitely add a link to a song that I imagine would have been the soundtrack as the two of you were looking at each other swimming underwater. Oh, hey. And actually, I like you said, I, sh- I shouldn't mention last names. But her last name was Luna, which meant moon, which I thought it was pretty pretty awesome. Oh, that's so sweet. Sweet little Java. <laughs> okay, we're ending this right away. Hasta pronto. Okay, adios. This has been Agave Road Trip, the podcast that helps gringo bartenders learn about agave spirits. Your hosts are Lubank and Chava Periban. Sound engineering by Roy Sierra. Theme song performed by Gabriel Oliveira and Mark Rico. Sign up to become a road tripper and listen to more episodes at agaveroadtrip.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. And if you hated it, recommend it to your enemies. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Lou is in charge of our social media. So if he happens to sound like an old man, forgive him. He is one. Agave Road Trip is a production of 10 Angry Pitbulls, Inc. Agave Road Trip is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. To subscribe to the Heritage Radio Network newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with Heritage Radio Network on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find Heritage Radio Network at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Heritage Radio Network couldn't do that without support from listeners like you. Become a part of the food world's most innovative community today. Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please join the Heritage Radio Network family by becoming a member. To become a member of the Heritage Radio Network, click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Heritage Radio Network can become addictive. Programming you here on Heritage Radio Network can drive you to eat, drink, and listen to more programming on Heritage Radio Network. If it drives you to drink, please do not drink and drive. Drink responsibly. Eat responsibly too. And listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly. To listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly, wear protective earbuds. While wearing protective earbuds, do not drive or walk. Sit in a comfortable chair. If that comfortable chair has a hard seat, please remember to get up and stretch every 30 minutes. If you get up and stretch every 30 minutes, do not stretch beyond your abilities. Stay within your defined stretching capacity and consult a doctor who specializes in stretching. If you do not have a doctor, listen to all the shows on the Heritage Radio Network. There has to be at least one doctor among the Heritage Radio Network podcast hosts. Thanks for listening. Agave Road Trip out.